We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal committed themselves to public service at the weekend, preparing everyone for the anxiety of the Derby by turning the Leeds game into an anxious nightmare. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name's Alex Smith, the Blockman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, it was it was trending towards a nice, comfortable, easy, beautiful spring afternoon at the Emirates. And then the players and Mikel got together, and I think they realized, look, the Derby is Thursday. It's going to be anxiety-inducing. It's, it's going to be stressful. And the best thing we can do is help prepare the supporters for that stress and anxiety by generating a little bit at the end of this game. So they did. Not too much. Well, it depends on who you are. I know uh, James McNicholas, Gunner Blog, literally left his seat and walked around the concourses of the Emirates because he could not watch the end of the game. Um, your mileage may vary on how you got through it. Scott, uh, on the Instant Reaction Pod, was acting like, oh, no big deal. It was a piece of piss. No problem. But you know what? I think we can all agree that the anxiety is coming on Thursday. I had a dream last night that we lost the Derby 3-0. And the problem now is I've spent the entire morning trying to figure out if that's a good omen or a bad omen based on how I tend to jinx things. Have I just jinxed them or have I double jinxed us? I don't know. Some admin here. We are going to do a a pre-match live stream. And before we go, oh, great, there it goes. There's the jinx. The last pre-match live stream we did was before the Chelsea game. So... I would like to think we're responsible for the good run that Arsenal are currently on. So we, we need to keep that going. We are also looking at, and I don't want to get hopes up too high for what should be a phenomenal experience, a live watch-along for the game. The technology is sorted out to make that happen, so that is something that is potentially in the frame. And as a last reminder, later this week, we will pick the winners for the year of Patreon. And I've received so many nice emails and DMs and things like that. We've gotten so much uh, amazing screenshots of great reviews for the podcast. And I just can't thank you enough. And I would love to do so individually for everyone. The COVID has knocked me on my butt a little bit. My brain is super, super foggy and scrambled, which is pretty scary. And if you've gone through that, then uh, my sympathies, because it's not pleasant. uh, And I am doing my best to recover from that. But so apologies if I've not gotten back to you personally. But if you leave a review, just grab a screenshot of it, send it to us over on email, contact at arsenalvisionpodcast.com. You go into the drawing for a couple free years of Patreon. Enough admin. Paul's on Twitter, at Posman in my pants. Hello, Paz. Woohoo! 
Indeed. And Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Yeah, I I have to tell you, like I'm I, I would like to do this entire podcast just analyzing what my dream of losing the Derby 3-0 no. means, but I, I feel like that would be unnecessarily selfish. No. So we won't engage in that silliness. Clive, the best place to start with this game, um, I think is your experience at the ground. Because I, you know, something occurred to me. I think back to top four battles of the past, you know, a couple of years back when Arsene Wenger was still here and it seemed like a perennial rite of passage for Arsenal was getting past Spurs and getting into the top four. But we made it nervy. We didn't always do it the easy way. And I remember the atmosphere at the Emirates being pretty tetchy at that time. You know, not necessarily so supportive. Almost like there was this right to top four that it was expected and that it was almost beneath us that we were going to have to struggle to get there. Yeah. And maybe I'm misremembering, but that's just sort of my memory of it. This is different. The atmosphere is just full-throated support. It is a bullion. It, it is 100% the fans backing the team, trying to drive them on over this line. And, you know, the club, to their credit, have tried to do things to tap into what's going on in the fan community. Whether you like the Lewis Dunford song, The Angel, or not, I happen to think it's a cool song. You know, some people like the idea that the the club connected with that and did something with it right away, and maybe for other people just say, yeah, it feels manufactured. But I still think it's the right idea to try to get something going that connects the fans and the team and creates atmosphere. And it, to me, watching at home, seeing the team huddled up before kickoff and hearing that song reverberating through the Emirates, yeah, it was it was haunting. But I'm curious, you were there, a beautiful sunny spring day, turned into a little bit of a scary spring afternoon, um, but... But how do you feel about the way that atmosphere is building at the Emirates, the way the club is working to create that, and how the fans are helping drive the team on? Yeah, so obviously the song is one thing. Uh, I think that's that happened sort of organically online last week, and it's, yeah. it's obviously fed into the stadium. And they they sort of played the whole song initially, but after the game they played just a bit that people know, and it, it works course, much yeah. better. Yeah, and it worked much better. And so, but let's be honest, right? For the moment you get there and you walk around the outside of the Emirates, it's just full of smiling faces, you know, honestly. And it's the sort of things that, you know, when you go into a positive place, you can just see it. You know, you feel it, you see it. I go in and um, it's just all, it's just all happiness, right? It literally is all happiness. And then we're open for an electric start. And that's exactly what you get. And sort of sitting in my seat, I'm looking around, and it's full of colour. You know, obviously when it's a bit warmer, you tend to see a few more shirts about, you know, like um, the replica stuff is out there, and it just looks like a wonderful place to be. And then we play really well. And you, you, I can't really explain to you the positivity around the ground. I'm not... I'm not someone who, you know, it, it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been that way. In fact, if anything, we were defined by division and negativity, particularly yep. in the last half decade. We, As a fan base, we have become known as the most opinionated. Uh, we got some very popular fans online. We have a huge online community, and we have some people. It's weird to talk about yourself in the third person, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, with lots of divergent views. And it's it's really defined us, right? And then we have a team that's um, also divided us by certain personalities, for example, big personalities. And we've, we're coming through that. And what I'm really finding interesting is the intelligence of the fan. You know, I happened to meet a lot of people yesterday, and they are so intelligent about the game of football. 
They really do. They don't just like support the team. Really, Arsenal. <laughs> they know what they they. Everybody knows what they're looking at. Everyone knows what's happening. Everyone can feel similar things. Everyone wants the same thing. We're all a little bit nervous, right? But it's, it really is unified. And um, unless people just come I, up to I me and say, say the say same Clive. things. Clive, go There's some selection bias there, right? The fans <laughs> that approach you are intelligent. Yeah, I just about to Don't say that. Don't want to stay yeah. away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just about to say that the people that come up to me, maybe I don't know. I don't know what it is. But hey, look, a lots of people are out there feeling the same things, and it's it's a lovely, lovely place to be at the moment. And I hope that continues into the next couple of weeks. Because I yep. can't. It's in all of my Arsenal life, and I was there when we won the league in in two thousand and four, ninety eight. It just felt like ah, it's what we do. Maybe it's because I'm appreciating it a little bit more that we're doing things correctly. But I really am invested in this, and I really do appreciate what's happening. And I'm not the only one. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll see if that holds through the balance of the season. I suspect it will. And I think what that intelligence about the game does and and the fact that people can consume so much excellent media and content about Arsenal right now that's thoughtful is I think it clues them into the fact that we're trying to build something for the long term. Because like if you if you rewind 10 or 15 years, what did you get in terms of Arsenal coverage? You got the tabloids and talk sport. That's what you got. And it was there to wind up fans, to tap into their ugliest sentiment, to to spur on their most um, uh, immediate sense of self-gratification, result by result. And so the idea of, hey, trust the process, TM, right, that we're in a project, that we're building something for the long term, that top four is a worthwhile goal, would have been undercut by the idea of former giant Arsenal now seems content with top four, you know, Arsenal fields, young team expecting fans to tolerate mediocrity or whatever the, the tabloid headline would have been. But now we have these other things that we connect with and probably connect with even more, even if it's just on social media, interacting with other fans who talk to each other about what we're trying to achieve here. And I think that all works towards building a sense of unity and togetherness because you're not being spoon fed the toxic tabloid short-term headline-chasing news. So, here's why I think Arteta should be sacked for the last 10 minutes of this game. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Clive. What were you say? Just one last thing. So, I, I met James in there, kind of blogging in, in the pub, right, in the Tollington, and we were we just went for a quiet chat in the corner. That quiet chat was not able to happen. You know, and people were coming up to the pair of us, and it was quite overwhelming to be to be honest with you and um and but it was all so positive and appreciative and you know at lads come away we've done this for a while hundreds of episodes and some of them are really hard to do when you have a painful loss we have to almost lose twice you know and um it's hard work right but trust me all i can say to you guys and you'll know when you come over shortly is that people do appreciate it a lot they really do well and and we appreciate them so paul uh I would do 90, 90, 100 minutes of navel-gazing, but I, I want to get onto the football briefly and then get back to the navel-gazing. Um, I kid. The, you know, Arteta did something really clever in this game, which is I think he looked at a Leeds team that is obviously beatable, as we proved, but has been, you know, maybe a little more organized defensively uh, under Jesse Marsh. And I think he rightfully recognized that the one place we could be hurt 
is Rafinha. And that if you can keep Rafinha from hurting you, then you can make your day a lot easier. So what does he do? He puts Tomiyasu on the left. And it really did two critical things. It completely shut Rafinha out to the point that he was losing his mind after about 15 minutes. Um, he nearly got past Tomiyasu one time early on. Tomiyasu sort of slid to the ground, toe poked it back to Ramsdale. And other than that, he had no purchase off him whatsoever. And the other thing it did, because it turns out Tomiyasu was not just a specialist defender, but quite good at the, the football, is it brought Martinelli into the game in a way that we've not seen the left-sided forward be as involved in the game in the past. And it really lit up that side. And it's no surprise in my mind that great Martinelli work up the left-hand side led to the assist for the winner for the second goal. So let's talk a little bit about that decision to move Tomiyasu to the left because it, it sounds really subtle, but he could have just gone Nuno on the left, Tomiyasu on the right, you know, trotted out kind of what we've been doing and stuck with what works. He made a little tweak and I think it was perfect for the game. And I think it really set the it set the the balance of the game, the the way the game played out early on. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, uh, Rafinha was the danger man, so he stuffed that up and basically neutralized him, which means that Martinelli, uh, it, having that combination on the left hand side, Martinelli can target that space that Rafinha is always going to be leaving while he's attacking. So those were two good moves. Um, and I think Eddie in particular connected well with that side, with Martinelli. And that's that's a nice partnership. We're used to seeing Lacazette leaning to the right and connecting with Saka and Odegaard. I think there's maybe a little bit more balance with Eddie, uh, his combinations uh, with Martinelli and that understanding, which I wouldn't have necessarily guessed was going to be the case, but it's, it's how it's playing out. And it's being particularly effective for us. I think... The choices on the left were part of an overall um, uh, approach Arteta took, which was to lean heavily into uh, pressing, attacking, keeping yes. them in. Yes. Uh, and Leeds like to play out from the back, and they like to play out under Jesse Marsh. And he said, okay, we'll, we'll take that side of the bet, and we will full-on go at you. And we saw that play out. Uh, Clive had a gr- so Clive had a great section um, – th- his recordings he does at halftime and at the end of the game. Tim's done some similar stuff for us uh, live from the game, basically. Uh, they tend to be yeah, on the, the instant, instant reactions. reactions. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he does a great little analysis of what we were doing. And I'm not going to butcher it. I'm going to leave it that to him. But um, how we press and how we pressure. But you can see the, the evidence of it. You can see the outcome of it. Um, and then you put that into our overall context. So if you take this season, we played 35 games. Two of them have been no-score draws. So that leaves 33 games um, where there's been a score. We've only drawn three games. So that leaves 30 games where there hasn't been a draw. We've In 24 games, uh, we've gone ahead first. So of those... Mm. Yeah, that's a lot. And of those 24, we've won uh, 20. So you want to know what the plan is going forward? Score first. Score first. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, like, it seems obvious, but it's much more obvious for Arsenal. And basically, once we get it, Clive can tell you what our football is now. Uh, like I say, he did a, a really uh, good analysis of how we play. But I, I, I can't do as good a job as that, but I'm a simple man. 
Um, I know I when we've got our football. Thank you. <laughs> oh, walked into that punch. Um, I know when we've got our football on, and so does everybody else. And Clive can tell you what we're doing, but I know when we're doing it. And in that first half, mm. and by the way, the second, we're going to talk about how tetchy the second half was. We still battered them. They had three shots. I think they'd like one shot in open play, and it was from outside the box, or yeah. you know, from that last moment inside the box. Overall, we battered them. Everybody's nervous. Everybody's having ups and downs and the variance of football. Chelsea, like Spurs had a great game, but the great game before that, not so good. So, um, I think all this, oh, Arsenal is the kind of team that always does it. Like, screw that. It's football. Everybody's having ups, downs, ins and outs at the end of a tired season. We're doing fucking great. We roll. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's funny, right? Like, there's there's so much Arsenal stuff to talk about that ordinarily I'd be like, well, let's devote a portion of the podcast to United getting spanked 4-0 by Brighton and Chelsea collapsing to Wolves and there's really just no time for it because we're just so focused on what we're doing. It would be pretty damn funny if Chelsea found a way to fall all the way out of the top four. And there were some great scenes of Todd Bowley, their new owner, looking disconsolate at Stamford Bridge, I presume, after having had it explained to him uh, which team is the one he just bought and why they didn't win the game, which I presume he expected they would do every time. So... That was fun. But Clive, yeah, I, the interesting thing about the early stages of this game, the press was back. And one of the things that I thought during the losing streak that was interesting is we weren't as front-footed. You know, that that press wasn't as there, wasn't there as much. And to be fair, you know, like in the Southampton game, you can't press when they don't want the ball and they're going over, you know, over the top. But like there was one point in this game where I think we're like 15 minutes in, and we only had 45% possession, but all of Leeds' touches were in their defensive third. They couldn't get out. And, you know, it's worth pointing out before they got their random goal, this was 16-0 to on shots. Not shots on target, just shots in the game. This was one-way football dominance, and it was, it was initiated, it was instigated by the pressing. Not necessarily our passing game, but our pressing game. So you obviously had a great view of it from the stadium. And one of the things that you don't get on TV is the spacing of the players, you know, overall. I... I Hope someday we will get what they call an all 22 in the NFL, a, a camera angle where you get to see all the players, because I think that gives you so much yeah. ability to analyze the tactics, especially when you're at the ground. But so you had that view. Do you do you agree that this was a particularly front footed, pressing oriented approach that was was built on winning the ball back high up the pitch rather than trying to pass our way through them? Uh, yes, up, up to a point. And I always try to walk away from the ground with something new. Right. And I try to, to share it out. So. What really struck me was how we overloaded centrally. So this is what I tried to explain. So we overloaded centrally, tried to force them to clear the ball centrally. And as the ball was travelling, either it would be short passes or longer passes, they tried to dink it forward. We would win it high, but we wouldn't just win it, we would regain it and we would keep it. And I think how we supported the person going for the duel was really, really good. And so there's a holding going for a stretching header. You'd see Saka come inside. You'd see Cedric come inside. You'd see Elneny come inside. Give it to me. And so they're there for the knockdown. But you can't, you're not winning it and, and into a 50-50. So once they win it, knockdown, first two passes, out we go. And that kept the pressure on. right? So And so we really did focus on overloading the centre. And Eddie played his part in that as well. 
So we had our diamond going on in there. And the fullbacks, because we had like, Cedric was slightly inside a little bit. And with Tommy Asu being a, a, a righty on the left, he was tucked inside a little bit. So we really had our bodies in the middle of the pitch. So imagine you're like a, a leads back four now, right? And you're standing there and you're looking ahead. And all you see are red shirts. And your player's the other side. And you can't see him for these red shirts. What you do, because you don't feel comfortable, because you know if you lose the ball and you see overloads and superiorities in front of you, what you do as a back four then is you naturally tuck in. I've got to protect my goal. I'm going to tuck in a little bit, protect my goal, make sure these players can't run through me. I can see too many of them. They can't run through me. You're towards the defender. Protect nearest to your goal. So what do we do? We overload the centre, but we stick a couple of kids out on the, on the touchline, or literally on the touchline. And those kids are not bad in Martinelli and Saka. They can move. And we're getting the ball out to them quickly. And, of course, now the fullbacks are forced to get over and react late at speed. And we saw what happens when Aileen was too fast to react in the, into the corners. Mike ends up getting sent off. And that was our trick, really, to overload the centre, but also make sure we were brave enough to keep people wide. Now, in this time of nervous football, that's a good philosophy. Make sure you can't be run through. Make sure you focus on protecting your spaces and then you can control territory. But also make sure you have an exit. And we had our two exits. We also control the territory. We also control the central zones. And with Eddie's energy, he was able to drop in and help overload, but also spin around like he did for the goal. He did his bit in the midfield, flick spin, Martinelli, kill someone on the outside, chop back goal. You know, and I'm, I am honestly, lads, I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. Where should I go for my drinks and food later on? I mean, it literally was that. There was not a worry bone in my body. But yeah, I, I really like what we did for this game. It'd be interesting to see what happens for Spurs if we want to control territory in the same way. Maybe that's something for later yeah. in the podcast. Yeah, well, let's talk about Eddie for, for a minute, Paul. I, I think, you know, we are in a situation right now where we're going to take goals anywhere we can get them and how we can get them. We don't have what I would regard as an elite proven goal scorer. We have good players who are young, who have goals in them, but we don't have that guy that you say, well, he's he's going to get us the goals. So we get through a West Ham game with two goals from set pieces from defenders, and we get through this game with, you know, a really well-taken goal in terms of Martinelli skinning someone on the outside, cutting it back to Eddie, adjust his body, weaker foot, nice finish. But also just some industry, some endeavor, taking advantage of a goalkeeper who looked like he was going to have a, a little sit down and cry at some point during the first half. And, and that works too. Eddie has definitely provided us something. Now, my ability to analyze what he's provided us is maybe not as clear as some people. I actually find that what we are getting is some pretty bog-standard, decent center-forward play. Some running, some endeavor, some physicality and pace in the right place at the right time. And this is not me trying to take anything away from Eddie. I just think we had gotten with Lacazette to a point where we had a slow central midfielder wearing the number nine and pretending to be a center forward. That's that's the level it had sunk to. I'm not saying that's what it always was, but it had kind of sunk to that level. And in Eddie, we've injected a bit of pace and threat and danger back into that position. Some of the kind of running and harrying that you need from center forward, it puts the central defenders on alert. It moves them around more, puts the goalkeeper, obviously, under a lot more pressure. 
And you see what that gets you. I actually think, and we can come on to this in a minute, that this was a tale of two halves from Eddie, a very engaged, elite first half that looked like really top center forward play and a bit of a strolling second half where we could have used a little more engagement from him. But setting that aside, I, I want to talk about his first goal. You know, that that is a goal we've seen Aubameyang score, for example. I cannot remember the game, but there was one where he literally did the exact same thing, chased down a goalkeeper, took it off his foot. I wish I could remember the game. I think it was Watford. Tim comes. I think it's Was Watford. it Watford? Yeah. Yeah. But Tim, Tim probably listens to his electronic right. device right now saying no or yes. <laughs> yes, screaming out the right answer. But but Paul, I mean what let's let's talk first half, Eddie. Like it, it is definitely, definitely the kind of center forward play we have needed. And we can all debate what the level is, but he was he looked like he belonged up front for Arsenal is the best way I can put it. And I think the two goals demonstrate two different skill sets. One is just really athleticism, focus, determination. And the other is some intelligent running and really quality finishing. You know, I'm not saying that's a hard goal. It's a messy-ass goal. But he has to adjust. He has to use his weaker foot. A lot of players try to take that on their strong foot and mishit it. It's, It's a good first half from Eddie and two good goals. And, you know, the guy said, he sat down and interviewed Paul and he said, if I don't score goals when I get starts, then that's on me. But just give me some starts and give me a chance to show I can do it. And he wins us this game. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to talk about Eddie. It might sound like I'm talking um, talking about him in opposition to Lacazette, but I'm not. I'm talking about him in opposition, I like that word, to other mm-hmm. strikers uh, or other supposed strikers. Eddie has striker's mind. It's a very distinct mm-hmm. Thing. Like Ollie Watkins is a very good forward. He doesn't have a striker's mind. Uh, and I'm not, that's not a reflection on his ability. I'm just saying there's a particular kind of player who's a striker. Um, Lineker. Uh, um, Ian Wright. Uh, Berbatov. Uh, you know, particular kinds of guys who might, who look very quiet and then they pounce. And like the first goal is Eddie. You can go to wildlife for your analogies. Eddie as a shark, slowly swimming away, turns around, and then two flicks of the tail, and he's there, right? Part of, uh, Messier screws up there. Can, can I stop other- you for a second, just real quick yeah. on the shark thing? Yeah. Um, for those of you who are not patrons, Paul trialed this on the Instant Reaction. It was met with at best mixed results. Uh, I don't think people appreciate it. And he was so emboldened by that that mixed reaction that he's decided to to try it out again on the main pod. So there you go. You're not missing anything on either side of this either side of this beautiful piece of content. Go ahead. All right, scrap the shark analogy. It's like a big cat on the plains. They're walking around. They look lazy. They look tired in the hot sun. Suddenly they see the moment and they fucking go for it. They've spotted the zebra who's got a bit of a limp. That's Eddie, right? That's the first goal. Doesn't do much, you say? But, like, the, that last bit of movement and the way he gets his, his body and, like, yeah, the tap-in's simple, but the bit leading up to it, classic Eddie, right? We had a period of time with Eddie where we thought, oh, he's not very good. He we get He's getting starts. This was, you know, start of the previous season. We brought him in for Lacazette because Lacazette was struggling, uh, Obama Yang was playing off the left. So we bring in Eddie. He's a, a few starts. Nothing much happens. We were playing in our, our own third. Eddie's a player you bring on when you're creating opportunities. He'll always meet and beat his XG. He'll always make the runs. He'll always be in the spots. He'll always get to the six-yard box. 
He's a striker first and foremost who also do- helps with your build-up play. His movement's really good. The more time he – he's going to be a bit special. I don't know how special, but he's always had this. He's always going to be in the right spot. His movement's really good. It's fluid. The more time – we spend in our final third, which we're finally doing, the more Eddie will make sense in a team like us. But if you're not doing that, if you're assessing him on why isn't he doing good when we're spending most of our time trying to trying to play out of our, our back third, and as we did for, what, a season and a half, we didn't play in the attacking third, you're going to think, Eddie, he's not up to much. His The second goal, yeah, that's all about adjusting your body, um, improvising really, but making sure that ball goes where it needs. Second half, you see a bit of striker's mind, right? He does a bit of work, but not as much work as you want to see him do. The body language comes into it, but we should uh, interpret his body language with the idea that he's one of those strikers and sometimes he'll annoy you. That's my take on Eddie. I think he's really, really good. You know I've thought he's really good for a while. I didn't think it was going to happen for yeah. him at Arsenal as it played out. Um, the, guy's, the guy's a bit special as a striker. I just don't know how special. Yeah, I have to admit, like in the midst of a top four chase where we are scraping our way to hopefully big things at the end of the season, doing anything we can to get over the line, and Eddie has come in really in an emergency situation and provided a, a spark I just find it to be the wrong time. I mean, there's no avoiding this. I was going to say the wrong time to be discussing giving the guy a contract and what his future at Arsenal should be. um, What should be. And and to be fair to Mikel Arteta, when asked about this after the game, he said, can we just stop and let him enjoy this? Can we just stop and let, let him enjoy that he's getting this chance and that he's taking advantage of it and enjoy how beautiful it is? Because that's the right attitude. I don't think you can, when a guy's just scored two goals, to get you a crucial win, to keep you in the race for Champions League, that's not the right time to clear-headedly examine what the club should do strategically in terms of offering contracts to players. That's the time to be uh, clapping and cheering and celebrating and high-fiving the player and hugging him and loving him, buying his shirt if you want to. But the clear-headed analysis of what to do with the future of these players, whether it's Elneny or Enkedia, is when the dust settles on the season and you can think about it a little more clearly. And I'm sure the club will have that kind of sober analysis. I understand why fans are caught up in the momentum of it. I don't think that's necessary for right now. Clive, we can just appreciate what Nketiah is doing, what Mohamed Elneny is doing, what these players are doing. And I had a thought, by the way, and I'm curious if you agree with this at all. I actually think that it's a sign of really sensational coaching. Because I think when you have to go from your starter-tier players down a tier. And that's not to knock Elneny or knock Enkedia. But, you know, th- these are little-used players. Nuno, Cedric, Enkedia, Elneny. These guys are coming in at the sharp end of the season and contributing. When you have a system that's really good and a coach that's really good and the instructions are clear and the roles are clear, I think that puts players in position to get the most out of their talent level. When you put players on the pitch with a lot of pitch to cover, or a lot of different things they have to manage, and the instructions aren't as clear, and the system isn't as specific, suddenly you're asking these players to figure out and solve a lot of problems on their own. And the really elite players can do that. But the players that maybe are a step down from elite may find themselves overwhelmed by the amount of responsibility put on their shoulders. And I think Arteta deserves credit for saying, you know what, I'm going to restore Shaq at a midfield. I'm going to put my 
my squad players that I'm bringing in in positions that they feel comfortable, where they can thrive. Now the players still have to go out and do it, and then he still has to go out and look like a Premier League-level player, which he has done in more, and Eddie has to come in and look like an Arsenal striker, which he's done in more. But I think it speaks to the quality of the coaching that you can bring in these players at this point in the season and get performances from them because the system is putting them in positions to succeed. That was not necessarily the way he solved these problems last season. I think he has done a really good job with it this time around, and it's a credit to him. So how do you think about, certainly Nketiah, this performance from Nketiah, and maybe also someone like Elneny, who looks brilliant, and we know so much about this player and who he is, but to his credit, he's come in, and we've seen the best of the things he can do when that has not always been the case in the past. Yeah, another thing that I came away with yesterday that really stood out to me was the principles of how we play are now entrenched in the team. Exactly. Yeah, and, I agree with that. And you can see it. And the way you can see it the most is as the ball's circulating around the team or through the team, there are multiple players pointing at the next pass. They've rehearsed it. They've done it before. They multiple players know where to go. And you can you can almost predict what's going to happen. You know, and and when and when you see somebody that's not quite there, not quite on message, they stand out. And you know the person I'm talking about, by the way. It's not talent. Yep. It's about being on message. Was it the guy who didn't realize the keeper wasn't in goal? Late Regardless, in the it was, <laughs> you know what? That was that was, that was just one thing. And but there were other things he was doing. Which I know. I'm, I'm just. And, and to be fair, you know. he hasn't played for a long time, and it showed. And, and that's and that's fine, right? Any job we do, we haven't done it for a long time. Guess what? Next time we go and do it, you're not so good at it as you were if you, when you're doing it all the time. Sometimes so, even jobs you do every day. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that stood out to me was the, you know, he spoke about. I never heard his term before. When he joined, he spoke about getting us to play with one brain. And I thought that was a beautiful term, and you can now you can now see that. So within that, everyone has their role. And so Mohamed Elneny has his role. He knows exactly what it is. He knows exactly where he's got to go when the centre-back's been out to the outside. He knows exactly what he's got to do when the goalkeeper's got it into his hands or feet. He's got to be available. He knows his two exit paths. Normally, to his, as he's facing his own goal, he's to his left, which is easier for a righty. So he knows where he's going. So he plays on the tee there. And he gets up behind things. He keeps it moving. And he, if he has to step a line, he does it. But he doesn't keep going. He drops it off. You know, Shaka's always there for him. He drops it off. You know, Eddie, last two games, 11 shots in two games. He had six at West Ham, didn't he? He had, I think yeah. he had five at this one. And so, hold on, I sent a four to 11 shots. What the hell's going on there, right? So There were some ridiculous stats going around, something like Eddie's had more shots in the last two games than Lacazette had this season or some or on target this season, something crazy like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and I'm, 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 you know, Paul's analogy around him appearing and, and disappearing as such, that's a really, that's, I, I, that's really noticed. I really noticed that because in the second half, I can't tell you a single thing they did. Honestly, I, I can't, you know, and, but in the first half, I couldn't take my eyes off him and he just appeared out of nowhere, just like, you know, just like he was just stealing money out of your pocket. You know, and where that where the wallet gone? He's gone. You know, and literally was doing that. And um, so that if for people who are not sure, and, and I was one of those, not sure. I've still got issues around some of his stride pattern and 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 shooting technique. But I had no issue with that second goal. That was just a thing of beauty. You had to take it early 
to beat it into the corner. He took it early. He wasn't on balance. Focus on the contact goal. Weaker foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, focus on the contact goal. Simple as that. Swept in. Extraordinary goal. Really was top level. And he looks like he looks by far our best centre forward. It's not even a contest, you know. And it shows you how quickly football can change because that was not the case. And I asked myself the question why I couldn't see it because you know why I didn't see all of this. And I think part of that with my analysis, and I have to hold my hands up here. I make sure I explain why I didn't. I was annoyed by some of the misses that he had. But I may have been annoyed with the Everton. results. Yeah. yeah, I may have been more annoyed by the results and how we lost the game. And then Eddie had a chance to fix a couple of these things and didn't quite. And I'm thinking, I, I really need, I wanted you to take this chance. I wanted you to take this chance. I know you want to play. Why have you not taken this chance? And then, so I was annoyed. I wasn't analysing properly, right? So, but I will say, I didn't expect this level of confidence. And he's going through that moment in your life when you feel invincible and he's going through it right now and we are riding that wave and he's got a couple more games to go, mate. And whatever happens to him, and if I'm him, I would probably think about going somewhere. But as an Arsenal fan, why wouldn't you want that person in our dressing room to continue? Academy kid. Yeah. Been there since he was 14. Yeah. Why would you want him in the dressing room? Easy work for us. Sign him up. Arsenal have offered him contracts. He has chosen not to sign it. Let's not think we're being lazy here. And go, oh, let's offer him a contract. We've offered him contracts. He's chosen not to sign it because he wants to go and play football. He's probably signed a pre-deal somewhere else. Let's see what happens. But good luck to him. Whatever he does, good luck to him. Just make, can you just pull out one more game for us on Thursday night? That would be really, really nice. Really nice. Look, if he scores a hat trick at the toilet bowl on Thursday, I think you... You just go with Rio Ferdinand's advice about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and you put the contract in the middle of the pitch and you leave all the numbers blank and you let him fill in whatever he wants. And I think that's the only sensible way to handle that. So, yeah, I, look, there is always this tension between what is easy to root for as a fan and what is strategically the right thing to do. It is very hard to see clear-headedly. Like, Newcastle United paid a lot of money for Joe Willock on the back of a hell of a run. And it's a run I'm sure they enjoyed and they were thankful for. And that's not to say Joe Willock's not a good player. He still may be a very good player. Did they make the right choice clear-headedly, holistically analyzing who the player is? Or did they get swept up in how he finished the season? I mean, they literally made him his prior- the priority summer transfer target last summer. It's hard to say. It's hard to, it's hard to separate how you feel about a player in the moment from who the player is broadly. And with Nketi, it's complicated, as Paul has repeatedly pointed out, by the fact that the guy just hasn't been given a lot of chances. For one reason or another, the chances have not been there for him. Whether it's two expensive striker signings that came into the club around the same time he might have found his way in, a loan deal that for a variety of reasons didn't see him get opportunities. My instinct usually is when there's an elite player in there, they get chances. I mean, in the back of my mind, there's a part of me that says, Arteta must have had just enough question marks about this player that when Lacazette was starting to dip... He didn't go to him sooner, but but that could be wrong. He's getting his chances now, and there is no arguing, Clive, with what the guy is doing in his chance, and that's all he's yeah. ever said is, give me the chance, and I'll show you what I'm about. To be fair to Arteta, he's always spoken well of him, far far better than I have, but he's always spoken well. But as Tim always well. points out, your playing time tells you what you think of the player, right? Like, But he's always spoken well of him, and I always listen yeah. to what the coach says and what other players said. And there was an interview, it may have been Holden and Ramsdale did a little interview, and they would talk about training. 
And you know, on a, on a, on a training day, they do the 8v8s. You can often see the pictures of the winning team online, right? The 8v8 games. And they both said, everyone wants to pick Eddie in their team for the 8v8s. Cause if, huh. if Eddie's in your team, you win, basically. And there was no hesitation. You win. Finishing ridiculous. Best finisher. Simple as that. Everyone wants Eddie in their team. And I thought that was interesting because he was nowhere near the team at that point. Do you see what I mean? And I often yeah. find, I often say to, to my own coaches and stuff, the best selectors of teams are the, are the players. You have to convince your teammates first. Because if you don't, it will not work for you on the pitch. You know, we think, us fans, you've got to convince us. No, convince your teammates. The players almost select the players by how they play and the relationship within the team. It's obvious within the club, within the squad, he has got a hugely positive reputation. And now yep. we are we are seeing what they've seen at London Colney for a long time. There's there's just no arguing you, what he's done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think you've got to separate out a team that's creating a lot of chances versus a team that isn't. In a team that creates a lot of chances, it's like your 8v8 in training, right? Eddie's going to kill you. And, like, we haven't seen anything else. I know I'm getting out my ski tips with Eddie here. You know I've been uh, – I've followed him for a long time. I signed up to following Leeds and became a Leeds video member when he was at Leeds. I've only done that for two players, for uh, Smith Rowe at Huddersfield and for Eddie at Leeds. And you know that I went on about how he was actually good at Leeds. He just had Bamford ahead of him. And Bielsa loved the way Bamford, Bamford played, but it was really good for Eddie and really good for his education. Mm. And he said so himself. And at Arsenal, he has Lacazette, he has Aubameyang, both captains in their turn. Um, there's no, like, you can say, like, if he's really good, he should get minutes. But the the coach has to decide to take the most important player player out of the mix out to put Eddie in. And it's only a question of, is this the right time? Is this the right time? So it's not like other positions on the pitch where he's going to get a lot of mi- minutes because uh, you got three midfielders and you got this and you got like there are no other moving parts for Eddie. He's, you, the coach has got to pull Aubameyang and Lacazette, and we weren't creating chances when Eddie did come on. So now we're seeing Eddie when Arsenal's an attacking team creating chances in the final third, and you think, ooh. Where did that come from? That's If you're not that kind of team, Eddie doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're creating chances, you need somebody. Like, there was a why we were saying, we're creating all these chances. We need somebody to put the ball in the net. That's who Eddie is. And he's going you to know, get well, better. A, he's 23 that's years that's old. Actually, yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, that's actually a good point, because I'm thinking back to when Eddie did well, and it was normally in lower-level games when we had the ball a lot. Do you know what I mean? And it may have been the League Cup, and we may have thought, well, actually, it was a level, not how we were playing. Do you know what I mean? And the amount of territory that we had. We've obviously got a lot more control now because our principles are in place and a lot more solid. And I think Paul makes a good point, right? We're playing in a part of the pitch that suits him. And I think um, that's why we're seeing a little bit more. We're it's going to create we XG. We just need somebody to finish it, and Eddie's a finisher. But then again, you know yeah. what? I was going to criticise myself now because at West Ham, when we were pinned into our own half and we had to exit down the sides, he was able to do that as well. 
So when we were squeezed in a little bit and we were trying to protect the lead, he had the ability to say, you know what, lads, I know you're under a bit of pressure. I'm going to take Zuma for a run. Right, so mm. so I think he's just developing. He's just a late developer that's yep. just developing, and he's found his moment. And we just have to accept it. And my hands are held up. And mate, just keep going, son. Keep going. It's funny because at the beginning of the season, we were really struggling to control games and create chances, and that had been an issue. And we were playing with Aubameyang up front, and there was sort of this sense that we can't use Aubameyang. We need someone who can, you know, hold, hold up play, hold up play back to goal. We need Lacazette. Lacazette comes in. We look a lot better and everyone buys into the idea that hold up play was what was missing. But Oh, by the way, behind the scenes, there was this four, three, three shape developing. There was a pressing game developing. There was territory being won, and, and we were starting to push up the pitch. And the irony is we've now found our way back to a striker who's playing a little more like how Aubameyang would have done it. But because of how the principles of play have, have been put into place, we can now, use that player more effectively. And and to be fair, sometimes I think we get too caught up in styles and not caught up enough in quality. And let's just say it. Eddie is better than Lacazette right now. Eddie is a better footballer than Lacazette at this point, and he is playing better football, and we are better for it. Uh, before we move on to second half stuff and, and looking ahead a little bit, and there's a lot more incidents in the game to get to, but Paul, one of the big incidents is the red card. And like it's absolutely shocking that it required VAR to get get it done, but it did get it done. I mean, if that's not a red card, nothing is a red card. It's a lunging two-foot challenge showing both studs up off the ground. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it gets, but it does wind up being a red card, and it, it doesn't surprise me that it was a challenge on Martinelli, who, you know, for whatever reason, has kind of become polarizing, and I think it's very easy to understand why he's polarizing a little bit, because... When you have popular players competing for the same position in the starting 11, people are going to have a favorite, right? So right now, there's nobody pushing Bukayo Saka for a place that anyone would care to see come in. So it's easy to love Bukayo. You're going to love Bukayo Saka anyway. Eddie and Ketty, same thing. No one wants Lacazette coming back in. But on that left-hand side, people love Smith Rowe, as they should. Academy kid, very talented. You know, lots of goals this season. And some people think Martinelli should keep his place. And so that's created a little bit of a polarization to the analysis. I thought this was a great Martinelli game. He creates the second goal brilliantly on his own. He was skinning people down the left-hand side, and I don't think it's a surprise, as I said earlier, that he gets a good fullback on that side, and it brings him into the game more. It doesn't surprise me that he's the one that triggered the red card because they they really couldn't live with him, and eventually they decided to you know, to have a, have a go at him. And ultimately, I also think the advantage of the game he was having is that Rafinha couldn't just sort of sneak up the pitch and, and be a little more adventurous because he had to help back. So for me, Martinelli, aside from the Enkedia goals, was the one who caught the eye in the first half. And I'm, I'm wondering how you felt about his performance and the fact that he ultimately creates the frustration that leads to the red card. Yeah, I think man of, Martinelli was man of the match. I don't really get the polarization over him. Uh, may, maybe it's, well, it's just, just that some people love Smith Rowe, of- right? It's that simple. Yeah, but maybe it's also the strength of your endorsement for Martinelli or something, and I'm I'm not associated <laughs> just with that. Disagree with me, because <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, they're both enough. great players, and there are games to suit Martinelli, and there's games he's been great, and games where he's been okay. Like he was man of the match; he absolutely tore them apart down that wing. That's where we hurt them. That's where the goals came from, in effect. Um, there were plenty more goals. He swung in a brilliant cross uh, in the first half that uh, I think it's Tommy Asu just misses. But anyway, he, he, everything he does down that side, 
he embarrasses Ailing to the point where Ailing gets his moment. Uh, his head's gone at that point. He's had enough of Martinelli, and he's like, I'll make it look like I was vaguely interested in the ball. He did. The amazing thing is he straight legs it, two legs. Both sides of the ball doesn't touch the ball. He just goes for the player. I was astounded it was not a straight-up red card. Don't even think about it. Um, it was almost like he wasn't trying to hide it. It was an ast- the, the sound from the crowd, the reaction from the players, I'm still amazed the ref didn't give him the red, just straight-up red. There was no question. And then they show it on the VAR, and they show that uh, video replaying, replaying, replaying of him coming in with the straight legs. I'm like, holy cow, this guy is screwed. It looked like an, you were watching somebody assassinating somebody. Uh, he was toast from the moment they started showing that bit, bit of repeating video on VAR. Um, but it was all a symptom, a symptom of the disease that is Martinelli. Hang on a second. Um, he just absolutely <laughs> killed them. And uh, I think, like, I don't know how he doesn't get the start against Spurs, apart from Smith Rowe has had some incredible games against Spurs too. Um, so it's an interesting one for the manager to think about. But he absolutely tore them apart down that side, uh, dribbled, pulled two, three of them towards him, would come out with the ball. Got, like that, the second goal where he got, he's got two, three players around him. He's going nowhere, manages to lose them all, get to the byline, pull it back perfectly. And Eddie was on the same wavelength. Um, I thought it was it was one of his best performances for him. Yeah, he he does some Alexis stuff for us on the left in terms of creating some chaos all by himself. You cannot guard him, cover him with one guy. He creates space with his dribbling. He's actually pretty clean on the ball. Like you, you, Everyone remembers the statistics with Alexis where it'd be like, Alexis lost the ball 47 times in this game, but also had a hat trick and two assists, right? And you're like, well, I guess that's okay. <laughs> but Martinelli is pretty clean on the ball. He doesn't really lose it in bad positions. He's very switched on defensively. You know, I took notes in this game and the number of times where I have chances created based on his play. Um, you know, he took on two and almost found Eddie at the far post. He had a really nice play where he got in behind with a nice Shaka pass and then finds Shaka again, who slides it to Saka and um, and gives it back to Martinelli for a shot from a tight angle. He had the one where he skimmed the top of the bar which was really nice one-two play, and I thought he adjusted his body well for that. The one bad on wrong chance foot, that he missed. It? Yeah, the one bad chance he missed, I thought, was it was sort of, I think, on the volley a little bit, center of the box, and he swiped it wide uh, up the right. I, I want to I um, get to some other performances. Odegaard, I think, is one that we should talk about especially as well. But before we do that, I mean, I think you know where I'm going with this. It's really this simple. The, the time for regrowth is happening. I mean, it's thunderstorms outside. It's, it's a beautiful spring day. Spring is about regrowth. But you know this. If you've ever, you know, worked out in a yard, in a garden, trimming things back is how you keep them healthy. It's how you keep them looking good. You have to have the right tools to work in the garden. And you have to have the right tools to work on your garden. I'm talking about your secret garden, your magic garden, that special area, the below-the-waist area, the party in your pants. You got to keep it clean. Look, this is about Manscaped. Right now, it is time. If you haven't tried the lawnmower 4.0, you're going to be putting on those short shorts. You're going to be going bathing suit season, swimsuit season. We don't want any growth taken away from 
the beauty that is the rest of your body. So it's time to get the Lawnmower 4.0, the best purpose-built trimmer on the market. It is um, a long battery life, works in the shower, wet, dry. So, you know, I mean, that that was the thing, right? I used to get in the shower and then I'd see my wife's razor there. And I'm like, well, I should probably do some trimming. And who knows how long that razor had been there. And you go to work and the next thing you know, I mean, you've you've done more damage than you've done good. It's just it's just not the right way to go. Go with a trimmer that's designed for the job. It's got skin-safe technology. It's designed to work on looser skin, so it cuts the hair, not the skin. Um, long battery life, wet dry, as I as I indicated. It's got the induction charger, so you just set it in the cradle and it charges up. But I think I charge my lawnmower like every few months at the most. Uh, it's got guards, so you can trim different areas of your body. It has a button lock, so if you throw it in your shed travel bag that you can get from them as well. It doesn't accidentally start turning on. Um, if you get the Performance Package 4.0, you'll get the Weed Whacker, which does ear and nose hair. You get the Lawnmower 4.0, the Shed Travel Bag, some boxers that are really nice, as well as some toners and deodorants and things like that. So go to manscaped.com, use promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Come on, do it. Do it. You want to get cleaned up down there? This is the time to do it. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Do it now. Now, I I find that habits are hard to start and hard to keep. But there's one habit that I found very easy to keep, and that's using uh, taking AG1 from Athletic Greens. AG1 is a supplement, a nutritional supplement that is vitamins, it's probiotics, it's adaptogens. It's all the things your body needs in one place. And I'm one of these people that was taking like vitamin gummies and all of these different um supplements every day and I had to remember to take them and it was getting expensive. It was getting frustrating. And then you'd, you know, read an article that would say, oh, well, with this supplement, you're actually probably uh, having most of it pass through your body without the uptake. So AG1 from Athletic Greens is something that I've been taking every day and I find a few things. So first of all, energy, which is a big, big thing that I need. Um, it's allowed me to cut back on the coffee a little bit, although I still take my coffee, of course, but I start my day with the AG1. And a few things to bear in mind, because one of the things I know for a lot of people with supplements as well, I'm gluten-free or I'm keto or I'm paleo or I'm vegan or dairy-free, whatever the case is, it's lifestyle-friendly for all of that. No GMOs or anything like that. Um, you know, another thing that I, I think is important for it is just that it combines a lot of benefits. Gut health is something that I think a lot of us would like to do better, but we're not sure how to approach it. Well, AG1 is a small microhabitat with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of your gut health. And your subscription will come with a year's supply of the vitamin D, which is so important to add. Um, you know, especially we have very dark winters here. So getting vitamin D is a really essential supplement. Also, it's a company that values sustainability. So um, they are a carbon neutral company. And as you know, we're very philanthropic positive on this podcast. In 2020, uh, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids through the No Kids Hungry campaign in the United States. So a great company in that respect. So what do you need to do? Well, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs so you don't have to miss when you travel. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash vision. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash vision to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. One last thing to tell you about, then I promise we'll move on, and that is how to take care of your business. The best hiring partner on the planet is Indeed, and you should be partnering with them. They're going to save you hours 
on multiple job sites because they're the one site we can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You know about Indeed by now. I've been talking about Instant Match. As soon as you sponsor a job post, you get candidates that means your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. With Instant Match, over 80% employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job post. And then you can invite candidates to apply, which creates that connection between you and the candidate, which I think is brilliant. Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. They're an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Paper qualified applicant not available for all users. You need to hire. You need Indeed, Clive. Is that enough of that? Indeed. Indeed. I apologize. My brain is in absolute slow motion through the COVID fog, so I'm struggling through that, and I appreciate you bearing with me as I did. But one of the things that I've been so, so impressed by, Clive, is the way Martin Odegaard has you know, just continued to embrace his role as sort of the technical leader of this team. And I don't want to pretend that he's been great in every single game. That's not necessarily the case. But more often than not, you know, especially in games like this, when we are playing in the areas of the pitch we want, he has a great game. You know, those things go hand in hand. But the thing with Odegaard is, if he's not scoring a goal or providing the assist, it's easy to miss some of the things he's doing because they're so clever and they're so subtle. I mean, the 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 shot Saka hit straight at uh, Melier came from a gorgeous disguised pass from Odegaard, no look, out to, to Saka first time. He always just makes the easiest, quickest, cleanest decision. Not always, but but most commonly. Um, he obviously had a chance in this game that I think he, he hit too close to the keeper. He had a free kick cleared off the line. The team really seems to trust him to be the guy to get the ball on the edge of the final third and make the right decision, and more often than not, he does it. I thought this was a great Odegaard game, and I wanted to focus on it because I think he's one of these players that unless he's involved in that final moment, as I said, sometimes you can overlook what he does, but we shouldn't because it's so important to how we play in the final third. Yeah, the word technical security pops into all our heads, mm. really. Um, you have to have a player like this if yeah, you're going to play in the attack the third year. Just give him the ball in the phone box, it doesn't matter, right? He's just so neat. In fact, when he gives it away... I think we over-index the giveaways <laughs> because we're so disappointed because he never gives it away. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. Um, yeah. and so when he does, like, what's going on here? I often find his bad games come from a lack of energy when he's tired. And I think that's going to be our challenge, when to rest him. He can't play every minute of every game. Obviously, we're coming to the moment of truth. And so that's not going to happen. But next season, we have to think about this. And potentially our buys in the summer may allow us to do that. Wall Street Row allows us to do that. But for me, he's one of the coaches I was talking about on the pitch, right? He's literally coaching the team on the pitch, no doubt about it in my mind. And there were gasps in the stadium, some of his passes, you know, gasps, literally gasps from people who had a good view of the pitch and they were still gasping, mm-hmm. you know? They were gasping because how could he see it? You know, so that was the thing for me. It's something I've been thinking about overnight as I'm getting over my hangover. What we have with those four up front, right? Let's just think about this for a second. Right? We've got a 23-year-old that's got experience, but really 
been thrown around on loan a couple of times. He's finally found his home, and, and, and we all love him, right? we got a couple of 20-year-olds on the outside of our pitch, kids, really, and another academy kid has played 20 top-flight games. And I can't get over this feeling that we shouldn't be here. Do you know what I mean? We shouldn't be here with this group. And the reason why we are here is because of how we play, the inter-team relationships, the principles by which we play, the abilities that we have that have overcome the lack of experience and the lack of age. And Odegaard is the perfect bridge. He's almost like the the leader, the word I'm looking for, the totem pole, the the flag bearer of, of this new system, this new way of playing, this new team. He is like the perfect player for what we're trying to do. And um, and it's wonderful. I can't get over this thing. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here with this group. Look at the Manchester United squad that's just broken up, right? I, I'm sorry, you look at the Spurs squad and some of the players have a top end of their pitch and their, and their levels look of experience. The levels of experience. The they should be winning titles with that team. Uh, yeah, the levels of experience that they have, international tournaments, the goal scoring, the assists, record-breaking... You look at Chelsea, you're absolutely right. You look at their centre forward, 90 odd million, another one, 60 million, another Caverts, now 70 million. We're talking about players, even their academy players, England internationals. We are talking about a, a level that we shouldn't be at. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't be here. And why are we here? Because of everything we talk about on this podcast how we play, the unity, the principles, the pattern, the crowd. The crowd know we shouldn't be here. So they're thinking, you know what, I better do my bit, right? Even the online community is starting to get on with each other, right? So it's changing because we know we shouldn't be here. We know that every single detail of how we approach this is going towards getting us where we need to get to, right? So, and yeah, I can't get over that front four. Just think about it for a second. Think about it, you know? And you add Smith Rowe into that as well. And like I said, has played his role because he enabled those kids. He gave them the confidence initially to say, I can do it at this level, you know, until he ran out of puff, right? So now he needs something else. It's not, I will not dismiss, dismiss what he did when Aubameyang went away. We need to lean on him significantly to get these guys to realise they belonged at this level and they could score. He just went too far the other way. We needed something else to lift them. And now we have that in, in Eddie. So... Odegaard's the only issue I have is post-internationals, funny enough. When he goes away with Norway and he comes back, yeah. we lose him for two or three weeks. And I think the next phase of Arsenal will be to make sure we have somebody else that can take that technical leadership. But Elliot, you're right to highlight him. He was a joy to watch, a joy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think there are people that have been a little bit burned by Ozil, especially late period Ozil, and and analogize Odegaard to Ozil because, again, the technical security, the creativity, some of the passes they play. But what you get in Odegaard that maybe we didn't always get in Ozil is an off-the-ball work rate and a, a box-to-box sort of all-court energy that you need to be competing at the top of the table. He He is not out there strolling, waiting for the ball to come to him. Uh, if anything, I think... He's at his worst when he comes to the ball sometimes. He's a player who has said himself that what he needs to do is find the pockets of space, not always be drawn to the ball. Yeah, Clive? He just needs to shoot. That's another thing. I didn't mention it. I don't know if you guys agreed. I felt yesterday there was a couple of opportunities to shoot and he chopped a reverse pass. Hey, mate, if he chops reverse pass and we score, we're all saying goal this season and I'll love him forever. But when he doesn't, when he chops reverse pass and the player doesn't see it and we don't get a shot off, 
I'm thinking, just shoot, mate. Come on, shoot. You've got goals Especially in you. Especially against a guy like Melier, right, who looked like he was going to cry at very points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've got goals in you, and I want to see him shoot because I trust his shooting technique. I really do. I trust mm. it. I want to see him shoot more and take more goal-scoring responsibility. I don't worry about where he picks up the portrait. I'm not too worried because he seems to go where the team need him. And as I just put, dropped into the chat, he regularly tops our kilometres run per game. And so, yeah, yeah well, I, I think he's a wonderful player, mate. He did have a shot, a good one, and he was played in by Mohamed Elneny. And Paul, the pass from Elneny to play him in was beautiful. Reminds me of the game before against West Ham when Elneny played in in Kedia a little bit. Granted, that was a little more with space to run in behind. This was this was sort of a line breaker right up the seam. Elneny had a very good game. Elneny completed what he always does, you know, which is 107% of his passes. You know, the guy completes passes he didn't even attempt. I still think he opts for safety a little more than I'd like because when he doesn't opt for safety, you see what he can do. But he's playing the party role and not half batted it. This was not a 4-2-3-1 the whole game. Shaka was going up into that eight and leaving Elneny to do the job. And granted, it's 10 men leads, but he did it. And he's doing things that I don't think a lot of people would have thought he could do. Look, you know you're going to get safety and security with Elneny, but in the past, what my complaint would be is it's very easy for a team to defend us because they double Shaka, and if the ball goes to Elneny, he's not going to hurt you. And he is taking some responsibility to change that now, moving it quicker, looking up. You know, Do I think there are still times when he receives with his back to goal and could turn and, and go into the space that's in front of him? Sure, if I want to nitpick. But there's a reason he's you know, not our nailed-on starter, right? So for what he's doing, I think he deserves huge credit. If you told me that with party out, we would stick with the 4-3-3 four, three, three at times and let Elneny play the party role, I would have had real concerns about it. The way he's playing right now, it certainly seems good enough to me. I mean, given the game Martinelli had and Enketia had, I still think uh, Elneny has a really good shot for man of the match in this and yeah, some of it was yep. again. Well, a chunk of it, two thirds of this was against ten man leads, but that has its own challenges. And a third of it, and our best third of the game was against eleven man leads. Um, I don't know who this guy is, True. honestly. I have no idea who this player is. He's, uh, it's like uh, he's been. Uh, embodied by party spirit, he's spraying it around. He's like. Chaka, as you said, was pushed up, especially in that first 25 minutes. Chaka had a really good game. Um, but part of that was the fact that he could let Elneny do his thing. Everybody was on the, like, as Clive says, they're stepping into positions. We're not changing how we play now when a player comes in. That player is coming in to allow us to play the way we play. Uh, Elneny was great. Um, there's that interview he did, I guess, for Egyptian TV or something like that. I, I've only seen uh, translated. With trans- Mido? Is that the one? Yeah, something like that. And he basically says, he talks about how he was basically out of the club and he wasn't in the plans and then he came for preseason and Arteta saw that he followed instructions and if there's one thing he can do, he'll follow instructions to a T. Perhaps Arteta's just given him the instruction to play just like Party, because he's playing just like Party. Um, he's been a, a revelation, and like uh, I love when a player totally proves me wrong. Uh, 
with on the upside. And uh, like, I don't know who this guy is. He's brilliant. Give him another contract now, <laughs> as long as he promises to keep mm. doing this. Uh, no, he's been sensational and he's been brave. And th- like, this is his best performance for me. I I felt that in the United game, some of his more progressive moments were almost United cutting off the safer options from him, ironically. And he, he looked upfield and he, he hit the ball or he dribbled and passed and, and broke the play. And in this one, uh, it was he elected the more aggressive passes, the, the sweeping passes. Um, the, bo- the boy can spray a pass. Um, we've, you know, we've seen him score from distance against Barcelona. Like he has quality from distance with the ball. Um, and he can spray a pass, and he's opening it up. So um, it'd be very interesting to see how it works against Spurs. He's going to have some space at times to use the ball, depending on how they play. Um, I don't know how he'll be if he's truly targeted by a very aggressive midfield. You know, that's hard for anybody. It's really only somebody like Partey who comes where the cream rises to the top there. But against most teams... He's going to have just a little bit of time to spray the ball, and I think he'll have some time against Spurs. Um, I hope he keeps it up because this was this was absolutely pivotal to us being able to switch the ball, switch the play, and keep leads on their toes. Yep, eighty-two passes played, uh, tied for second most in the team. Gabriel Magalhaes had the most; he was ninety-four percent. Tomiyasu. And Mohamed El Neni had next most. Tomiyasu, 93.9%. And Mohamed El Neni, just the 97.6% of his passes completed. And I I don't think that pass completion is necessarily the best measure because there are times with El Neni where you would see that number, but it means that he's not actually moving you forward, progressing the ball, but he had the progressive passes. We are talking to Scott on the instant reaction. That's the thing. His progressive passes number was really good as well. Um... You know, That's because of uh, how we play, Elliot, right? Yeah. If you've got two eights in front of him and you've got two wingers on the outside and you've got four that offer you a target, he now has targets. So if he doesn't hit them, what the hell is he doing on the pitch? Right, because that's the role we ask of of that player. Absolutely, we do. I think it's quite interesting because he's a true six in this system. Yeah, Party's a six in this system that could play eight, but he's a he's a six because of because of what he does to get out of the press is just so spectacular. Shaka's been forced into an eight role, and he's more of a double six. So right now, given the fact that you know, David Ornstein said this morning that we were potentially in contract talks. Sam be seen as a six or an eight. I actually think that his age, he could develop into an eight at this stage of his manlyhood, shall we say, until he develops that man strength to hold the base of the team. But potentially we are looking at, I mean, I've always felt that one of El Nene or Shaka would go. And if we get to the promised land, I wonder if Shaka will see this as his job done for Arsenal Football Club. And that could be the change. And, It'd be so sorry. But we wouldn't have said that a few months ago, would we? We'd have said, oh, Nelly's going and um, and Shaka will stay. But we'll see, right? We'll see what happens in the end. Elliot, you're on mute. Thank you for that. That's my professionalism card uh, gone. I, I did the mute <laughs> to stop the cough, but 
you know, it, it, it all went tits up when it was t- my time to talk. The good news is a lot of people will say that me being on mute contributed the same level of discourse and analysis as not being on mute. But all I was going to say is I put the Elneny conversation in the same basket as the Enkedia one, which is when you're in the heat of an emotional run-in and emotions are high and good feeling is running through the fan base and the club because of what you feel like you're on the precipice of achieving, is that the best time to start talking about, thinking about, and and rationally analyzing, holistically analyzing the future of squad players who have come in and give you given you a few good starts? My belief is no. Do we want to re-sign a 30-year-old Mohamed Elneny or maybe continue to build up, as as Tim would say, build up layers of of talent on top of the base that we're building? You could make an argument for replacing both Shaq and Elneny, not because either of them have not been good, but because we can still get better. The thing I'll say with Shaq, who I thought had a good game, is especially with the left side coming to life in this game and Martinelli being more involved and Tomiyasu creating a little bit more control on that side— Shaq got the ball in a lot of really interesting pockets of space at the top of the box. Martinelli played him in there quite a few times. He doesn't lose it there. He does good things there. But what he doesn't have is that instinct to drive then into the box and take on his own shot. You know, he's not a Gundogan. He's not a David Silva. He's not, uh, obviously, a Kevin De Bruyne. You know, and I'm picking really special elite talent players, right? He's not a Bernardo Silva. But, like, do I think we could go up a level if the player in that left half space who's getting the ball off Martinelli, off Smith Rowe at the top of the box has a little bit more of a uh, an attack-minded orientation, maybe. It's not to take anything away from Shaka. One final point on, on Elneny, Paul, before we get to some of the endgame stuff, because we still haven't talked about the anxiety-inducing finale here. So we got to get to that as well. Well, it does lead into that. So uh, what a, one of the key moments in that finale is Mohamed Elneny with a really important sliding tackle the Nicolas Pepe open goal discussion, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. and then he had a re- really good all round game, and like that moment, he was on it in a flash, extended leg, uh, takes the the ball off um, the distributor's toe. I don't know who it was, maybe Daniel James or Dan James actually. But anyway, um, like just all round, really good game. Good on the ball. His positional sense gives us a security. And I think he's just opening himself up and feeling it at the moment because you don't really necessarily always associate him with those clinching, sliding tackles, that first guy to the ball, the the pouncing. And, um, like, he just had a – like, he was pivotal to how we played in both halves. I thought he maintained his levels. Um, who is this guy? I love him. Keep him. Is he is he kind of our Henderson light in a way, right, in that – Henderson's energy and work rate frees up other people to do things. He's not, you know, I don't think Henderson is technically extraordinary, but he covers a lot of ground. He gives the ball to the other players who are going to do more of the work. Now, Henderson is, is a very good player. I'm not taking anything away from him. But in Elneny, I think you get a little of that, Clive, the the covering a lot of ground, you know, helping out a lot of players. Because I, I don't think this was a good Cedric game. I know some people thought he was all right. I thought Cedric was poor in this game, more on the ball than defensively. I didn't think it was a good Cedric game. But I think that Elneny help Cedric through games a little bit, um, if that's if that's a fair way to put it. So do you think that that's a fair comparison and maybe a fair comment about Cedric as well? Yeah, fair comment on Cedric. I, again, I think he has may have had the most passes in the game, and that, and that always worries me. <laughs> right? I hate it. We've won with, with a million shots, right? It's not the end of the world. But defensively, I think he can be got at. Mm. El Nini's just a little bit wiser and how he fills gaps. you know, And so... If Holding goes out behind Cedric to go and deal with something, Hell Nenny drops in. 
he, he, and he's just he's just more experienced and where to be. And uh, and I've really been impressed with defensive work around the edge of the area. And when he gets it, his first pass out is a really good one. You know, and he's far more. I'm going to get it. I'm not. He's not striding out thirty yards like Thomas Barty did against Man City in January. He's not going to do that, right? But he is thinking that direction. And again, it comes back to the layers that are ahead of him. He's on the staircase, so he can only pass forward. You're not passing square because there is nobody square. Do you know what I mean? It's all ahead That's of him, mm-hmm. and he's got he's got the the wagon wheel to look around and just pop the ball off, right? So. Yeah, he's really impressed me, but he's being himself. I think this is the thing I want to talk about. You spoke about Shaka there, and Shaka's doing everything for this team. I think if he could choose a role, he'll be part of a double pivot, a true double pivot, and he's a left-hand slot for yeah. that. And the team is developing into his like something different. And when Nuno's come back in, we're going to be loving if Nuno does come back in, by the way. We're going to be loving Shaka, just hanging left, shall we say, in left half position to give us some insurance for the, for the undoubted chaos we're going to have ahead of him. And so your role changes on a different game, on a different day. But I will say, El Nini's being he's allowed to be himself. And when you're, you can be yourself in the dressing room, that's when you can sign a new contract because there's a role for you in this team, right? So good luck to him. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I mean, you look at his past combinations, his most... 20 to Cedric, right? Makes sense. Helping out on that side. Strong connection between those two. Um, his second most to Gabriel. Again, not a surprise to me. You're still going to go back to the defenders a lot, especially Mohamed Elneny. He's still going to do that. Third most to Shaka, you know, who I think was playing more left eight. And then his fourth most was to Odegaard. Ten passes to Odegaard. And that's that's key, right? You've got to have your midfielders accessing Odegaard. I think when we've seen our attack struggle and Odegaard struggle, he hasn't been able to get the ball off those guys. And 10 passes from Elneny to Odegaard, that's important. You want to see that. And I think it's good that he did that. Um, Look, he had the one bad moment during our our scary period at the end. He had a bad giveaway. And Shaq got back and took the ball off someone. I'm not sure who it was when they were in. I want to say it was like four on three or four on two for Leeds. But other than that, a really clean game, a really important game. Paul, uh, let's move on. But do you have a do you have a final thought on it? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> you 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 head talk about a head fake. Clyde, uh, Paul used the literal <laughs> hands up. I have something to add. Feature of the recording window we're in. No, uh, so I throw I it to him like the professional. Thing. I'm like, oh, yeah. wonder what? Uh, oh, that's a, oh, never mind. I'll turn it off. Otherwise, Elliot oh, okay. might ask me what I'm thinking. So you were testing the feature, but actually had nothing to say. Good head fake. Good, good. You know what that is? That's the podcasting equivalent of a dummy, right? Yeah. So since you've dummied it, I'm going to dummy it right over. back to Clive. Clive, at one point, we're 16 shots to zero, controlling the game, 10 men, no problem, no stress. I even tweeted, and this is why it happened, by the way. I wasn't expecting a relaxing afternoon, but I'll take it. And, of course, that's what jinxed us. Um, Leeds get a corner. They get a goal. And to be fair, it's very uncharacteristic from Arsenal. We've been very good at defending corners. And I have to admit, my instinct is it's a drop in professionalism. There's a guy unmarked at the back post. That doesn't happen if everyone switched on. This wasn't sensational corner routine that flummoxed us or just big, strong bully who bullies us and there's nothing we can do. This is not tracking a runner and letting him be wide open on the back stick and no one covering the back stick. And I just, you know, I'm not going to like bang my shoe on the table about it, but I think it's a reminder that this isn't going to be easy and we can't pretend it's going to be easy. And it set off what I thought was a a kind of touchy 
end of the game. Now, look, on XG, I think this was like 3 to 0.4. It's not that they battered us, but they did have a couple moments where they were in after that. Um, and so it gave us a nervier finish to the game than we should have been. I am not the person who thinks we didn't push hard enough for a third. I think we were creating chances throughout the game, maybe not as many as we should have. But I am a little annoyed that we conceded this corner goal, and I'm, I'm curious. You, you probably had a much better view of it than I did. How do you feel about the way we defended that corner and, and how it led to the to the end of the game? Yeah, we just lost the challenge, and someone ran off us and uh, and scored. And um, to be honest, mate, I don't think it's a massive issue. I don't think it's a lack of professionalism. <laughs> I just, right, maybe that's overstating, I, but I, how about how about focus? Right? I mean, we've been yeah, so good we lost defending corners all season we, long. We lost a challenge yeah. at the front post, and we didn't quite have our zones in place on the back post. Right? So um, we got attracted to the ball and didn't win it. And that's and it was like the first thing they got near our box. We thought, let's go and deal with it. And we just didn't. And we got done. But I have to say to you, <laughs> it was it did bring a lot of trauma into the ground and I'm sure to everybody watching. And how tense were you? I mean, because I oh. look, I it pissed me off when we did the instant reaction and Scott acted all relaxed. Oh, I was never worried. I was never and I was like, What do you mean you were never worried? I was I was worried. I wanted to turn off the game. I didn't want to watch it. As it turns out, we got through it, but I don't think we got through it without any tetchy or nervous moments. I mean, they were in a couple of times, especially right at the death where Gabriel does a really good job getting across his yeah. man to to let the ball roll through to, to Ramsdale. Ramsdale had one um, poor clearance where he gave it right back yeah. to them. I thought we we didn't go to pieces, but we didn't make it easy. Yeah, everyone was nervous. Right? Everyone, was, everyone wants a four-point gap, and we were desperate for it, and we didn't get it. We were thinking we weren't going to get it. I mean, I, it was really bad. I was sitting next to a guy in the stadium yesterday, and he, he was talking to me about goal difference in the first half. Got to get our goal difference yeah. up. <laughs> I tried to remind him that Spurs have got Norwich last game of the season, so whatever they need, they'll probably get. We need to get our goal difference. That's what people were talking about that. And towards the end of the game, said, I knew we need that third goal. I knew we need that third goal. It was just the the old wounds of the Spurs 4-4 were prevalent in that stadium, right? Where you think it's done and it's just not. And I'm thinking, are we going to do that again? You know, are we going to really implode at a moment when we're right there? And that, that was all it was, really. And we just... We just played a few dumb passes. It, it was as bad as something. I, I had to go to the toilet. I didn't need to go to the toilet, but I went to the toilet in, in the middle of the game, and I just didn't come back too quick because then the game would be nearly over. It'd be closer to being over. I mean, I've listened to the commentary in the, in the in the stands. I just it wasn't nice. I, I don't know what it is. I've said it on the podcast before. We're just all really invested now. We're in trouble. We're, we've given our emotions, and if we get rejected. It's going to really upset us because we've we've told the, we've told the team we love them, and if they don't love us back by getting us to the promised land, we're going to be really hurt, and uh, and that's it. I'm afraid I'm all in. Yeah. mate. I'm all in. Yeah, we we are. Look, if you told any of us this past summer that with games to spare, we'd be locked in in fifth place ahead of Manchester United, I think people would have been pretty over the moon at that, but. That's not where we're at right now emotionally. There'll be time for analyzing it in a clear-headed way after the season, but right now, that's not the case. And I think it's funny. We will criticize players for not having the medal, not having the strength, the fortitude to get a game over the line, and we can't even watch the game. <laughs> we're, we're leaving our seats and turning off our TVs because we can't even watch it. We're expecting them to play through it. Paul, you have a quick thought on the on the corner goal that we conceded? Yeah, I know it's not the done thing, but I'm going to assign blame here, and I think 
it has some import beyond this situation, which is we're playing a left back who's done a great job, but he doesn't play a left back. And to me, where is your left back when that guy comes charging through? Uh, I've heard Chaka getting criticised, but he's in that row of three players. We have a very specific assignment for those three players who are in the middle of the box. They're supposed to block runners, and they do block runners. But one or two of them peel off the side, around the back. Uh, Tommy, of course, naturally moves to the front post with everybody else because that's where he thinks the ball's going. And let's face it, he he's a right back, so he tends to be very tuned in to that first ball. And it, now I know that's a little harsh on him, and he had a great game, and it's not a criticism of him because he doesn't play there all the time. But he also doesn't practice like the emotional wiring that comes with set pieces, knowing how to adjust what's going on, is all at feel at that stage, that level of nerves. He moves to the ball instead of staying back. Now, I could be wrong. I'm no defensive set pieces coach, but I do think it at least talks to the issue that Tommy could be playing great at left back. There'll still be situations which he's just not wired that way because he hasn't been playing playing that way on a regular basis in our system with our set pieces, with our patterns of play. There will be certain situations that pop up that will expose somebody who doesn't play there all the time, no matter how good he is. And, you know, we'd be looking at the Spurs game saying who should be playing where on the right, who's right back, left back. And for me, I'd put Tommy back on the right. And you have to. We'll come to that, but that's not even a debate in my view. Yeah, But... This kind of feeds the point that the will. If you put Tommy under enough pressure on the left hand side, you'll you'll see that he still needs to learn certain aspects of the system along the way. So maybe that's a little harsh, but that's how I call that corner kick. No, and to be fair, as I watch it again, maybe I'm a little harsh on saying it's not a clever routine or anything. It is a pretty clever. I mean, it's a near post header flicked on, which is not unusual. But who's their number five defender? Number five. He makes a little run and then seals off two Arsenal players so that you've got a man free on the back corner, a back stick. But like Tomiyasu, to your point, goes completely walkabout. Like he he chases the ball. He Maybe I've got this wrong because it doesn't look like a lack of concentration. I think you're right. I think Tomiyasu just kind of misses his assignment and, and he goes and chases look the ball. Look at all that space which, on the back post. Uh, on yeah. the, uh, where well, it's, our it's, back it's the are. space he vacates. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're zonally marking, which clearly we are, his zone has to be the back post, and if you leave it, there's no one there. So, all right, fair enough. I mean, look, it's it's a goal from a corner kick. We haven't been guilty of doing that. I'm not particularly worried about it. It did make for a nervy finish. And and Clive, like one thing that I think is interesting, it, I'm pretty sure it was planned that Saka was going to come off in this game and get a little extra rest. He was not brilliant in this game. He was not bad in this game. We did more up the left-hand side, so he wasn't quite as involved. Still did his good work, but... He has looked a little tired, understandably. He's played every single game this season. A lot of minutes. He's, you know, on our top two or three for minutes for outfield players this season. And I'm glad we got him off for a little bit of rest. But I can't say I'm so glad at the performance we got from Pepe. And look, if you bring Pepe on at home against relegation-threatened 10-man leads on a sunny spring day, and he can't cause any havoc, and he can't find ways to, to create openings then you really are in the realm of when can I bring on Nicola Pepe? When can I trust that he's going to influence a game? Because to me, if you didn't tell me anything about this game other than we're going to be 2-1 up on 10-man leads at home on a sunny day and we're going to bring on Pepe, I would I would have said tailor-made situation. It didn't go that way. 
Now, I think people, myself included, are maybe too harsh on how poorly he does when the keeper is up and the goal is empty. Dan James is very quick. He probably can't beat him for pace. I think cutting it back inside is wrong. He's cutting back into the help. He should push and run, or he should keep going straight and let something develop. But it's not just that moment, Clive. I thought it was a poor cameo and one that leaves the the role of how to use Pepe in this run-in very much in doubt. Yeah, well, the first lesson you need to have is you don't bring on Nicola Pepe when you're looking to hold on to a lead. You know, I don't think that's his role. The last brilliant game he had was the game where we needed to retrieve a goal. So you're saying well, bring him on when you're chasing? When you're chasing. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, there was a, okay, I think, I'm not sure if he just went to 2-1 when he came on. Paul no doubt remember. It was, yep. yep. Yeah, just went to 2-1. At that point, and I'm glad he brought him on because I think this is the time to bring him on. If the, if the guy that's ahead of you goes off, the hierarchy says he should be the next guy that comes on. But for the game, Potentially, we could have brought on, say, a Nuno for that, you know, to be to be an attacking fullback defensive option, you know, and and just seal the game. I used to like when Arteta used to bring on Maitland-Niles and Nuno at Burnley, for example, and almost have like double fullbacks wingers, if you see what I mean, in a, in a in a four four two block, and say, yeah, we're going to break on you in wide areas, you know, and um, I quite like that. But for the dressing room. This is the time you bring on Pepe. And I, I, mean, I just felt he just wasn't at the pace of the game, wasn't in the room, wasn't engaged, just wasn't there, just wasn't there. He didn't do anything massively wrong, but everything in his movement told me you don't look sure of yourself. You know what I mean? You know, we can have a little critique of um, Cedric, but that's more he's playing to the top end of his talent. Do you know what I mean? Um, Pepe's got a lot of talent and he's no he's not at the level confidence wise or or engagement wise or inclusion wise and Arteta's trying to include him. I applaud that. You know my views around using the extremities of the squad. I applaud that we got away with it. It's quite interesting when I watched him, when he he's different to Saka. So Saka holds his his width really, really strong discipline wise. Pepe doesn't. When Saka gets people coming over to him and he triples up he always manages to find that one lane out to Odegaard and then disappears and suddenly we've got an overload somewhere else. He understands exactly the model by which we're playing. Pepe gets it, slows it down, knocks it back, and then he just does his own thing. Right? He's just not playing the way we play, and it's immediately obvious. But what he does do, when the ball's on the other side of the pitch, he gets into the box. He really does. There was a couple of occasions where he gets into the box. And I'm sitting there watching, thinking, you know what? You're different to what we have. I'm not saying you're our future, because I think he sees, I think it could be done for him. But we may need a goal from somebody at some point. And he does mm-hmm. put himself into the box, in running lanes, in passing lanes. And we all know he's got that left foot first time around the corner. He can do stuff. So don't count it out. I should learn a lesson. You know, Rob Holding had clay feet. Now he's looking like unbelievable and scoring a massive Aldinia. goal on West Ham. Yeah. And then he's sideways, Mr. Sideways. We know what? He's pinging passes over the top at West Ham with the people running onto them, right? So I'm not going to do it at this moment in time. You know, we need them all. We will need them all at yep. some point at this moment in time. Let's just get there and then we can reassess the squad in the, at the end of the season what we need to do. But I think we can all see there's a potential ending for him 
But again, listen to Arteta. He still respects him, says he's training well, he's doing all the right things. So, again, much Otherwise, he wouldn't be playing. We yeah, know that, right? Exactly. He, he seems to be playing. Someone else would come up. He seems mm-hmm. popular within the club. So I'm not sure we're going to re sign him. He's on 140 at the moment. He's on a record signing and potentially is made to get back if he has another deal for him. But I'm not going to count anybody out at this moment in time because right now, mate, we got we got three massive games ahead, right? And we're going to need them all. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Paul, before we just have a quick talk about the Derby, and there'll be plenty of time to discuss that on the pre-match live stream on some Patreon content we got coming up, and obviously after the game and during the watch-along, all, all the content all the time. But um, just a final thought on Pepe and the end of the game and the way we managed through it. I mean, I look, I think the good news is... <laughs> We have this tendency to stereotype what past eras were like or past moments in the club's history. In my mind, Arsenal teams of the past would have found a way to drop these points. I'm sure if I go back and look, that's not true. And there are plenty of games like this where we're 2-0 up, it got back to 2-1, and we went on to hold on. But we did hold on. Thanks to some good Gabriel defending. Thanks to some good Shaka defending. Thanks to some nervy moments where we held on to it. And I... I would like to have seen us have a little more control over the end of that game, but so be it. The The Pepe thing is interesting, right? Like, I mean, people are going to rightly focus on that moment when the keeper is up and feel that he should do better there. The more I watch it, the more I'm not totally sure what I want him to do. In terms of that moment specifically, I'm pretty damn sure that cutting back into the helping defense is the wrong move. I am somewhat convinced that he doesn't know the keeper is up. Now, I'm not saying he should shoot on goal from there. That's not my point. I do think if in his mind he knows that's an empty net, he continues to run the direction he's going and lets the play develop just a little bit longer till there's an opening. But specifically with that moment, I, I think you feel a little more sympathy for him than, than some other people. So do you want to provide that viewpoint? Yeah, look, I think he got it wrong. <laughs> that's pretty obvious. <laughs> okay. But I don't think he expected to be in that moment. I don't think he thought that was his role to score a goal right at that point. El Neni does a sliding tackle that squirts the ball. And he's like, normally the thing is, you know, should I run into the corner? Should I hold up and wait for some runner? Like he has a moment where if his head's right, he hits the first time. Or he assesses the ch- – like, it's not a bad option to chop back and hit it on your left foot when you've a world-class finish with your left foot. If you've read the situation right, and he hasn't got it right with Dan James, like, he blinks and Dan James is on him. And so he has, like, half a second to get it right, and if it he- his head isn't right, and it isn't. But, like, players who haven't played for a while, they have a chance for a tap-in and they screw it up. And, like, life goes on. It's a moment in a game. Eddie and Katia, all those games ago, with a chance to put a header in at the back post, misses the post, misses the goal. What does that mean? It means he doesn't get a lot of chances in front of goal, and there's a really big and important opportunity, and we hate him for that moment because of it. And right now we hate Pepe Mm. for that moment because of it, but we also know... Uh, his performance on the day was a lot more than that moment. And the concern is his overall performance. He wasn't really dialed in either. And I think Clive's right, right? You want to bring him on when he's, when you're chasing a game, except mostly we're not chasing a game because we're the team who scores first. So 
We mm. also know he needs some minutes, and Clive said that a lot. So guess what? He's probably going to be getting those minutes when we're not chasing a game. And like, so the the manager is a very tough job. He wants Pepe engaged. He may need that goal before the end of the season in kind of broken, chaotic play when only a Pepe can step up and just bang it in out of nowhere. And we love the guy. So we've got to give him minutes. These are the minutes he has for him. Plus Pepe came on like one minute after they scored. So he was probably thinking, you know, we did two goal lead time for Pepe to show what he can do in a kind of a more, uh, more contained, more positive environment. Suddenly, holy shit, we got to hold on. Um, the problem with analysis at this time of the season is we're all fine with the, it's only the result that matters. Uh, we'll let go of the performance. But unfortunately, that leaves you with the situation where you're literally shitting yourself because literally the only thing matters is, is the result. And that's yeah. not much protection. Until, like, it's a great protection after a game when you didn't play as well as you liked, but you got the result. It's no protection in the middle of a game when it's not when you're ahead and you're playing well because the only thing that matters is the result. And in football, variance, shit happens. Everybody's going to have... You're going to have tame games where we look tired, not on it. And, uh, you know, so our analysis, the, like, at the end of the day, who cares how Pepe played because you go on to the next game and it'll be different, <laughs> right? Hmm. Uh, this player is good, then he's bad. That player is bad, then he's... Like, the end of the season is going to be really uneven. Uh, like, yeah, Cedric, right? You can go all over the place. I actually thought Cedric was pretty good in this. I thought he was bad in against United in the first half, good in the second. Like at the end of the day, we're just trying to fall over the line with the best 11 we can put out. And and it's also the case that if we are going to maybe get caught up in the euphoria of a performance from El Neni or Enkedia, we may wind up being prone to getting caught up in the disappointment of a poor performance from a player like Pepe Mm -hmm. and managers can't afford to think like that. You either trust their talent and what they're doing in training and that you can use them or you don't. And I think the fact that Pepe came on at all means that there's some trust there, even if it's fractured Clive, we'll we'll get out of here, but it's obviously now this simple. If we win the Derby, we are in the champions league. If we draw the Derby, we can win one of two and, and make the champions league. If we lose the Derby, we can still make the Champions League. We have to win both. I think you know which my preference would be. Doing it on their pitch, at their ground, winning, sealing it, that would be great. I think the draw puts us in a position where I would back us to do it, but I would love us to do it before the Everton game so we can just focus on the drinks on that day. That would be my preference. And also have the live event London just be a celebration, a coronation, (laughs) rather than um, a hand-wringing, anxiety-inducing moment. But... The biggest thing I want to ask you about the Derby is I believe that we should stick to our principles of football most times. I'm not sure I believe it in this game. When it comes to counterattacking football, there may not be a better team in the world than Spurs in some respect because Kane and Son are so devastatingly good. And when they have to break down low blocks, that's not as that's not as much their strong suit. There is a part of me that thinks bring in White and Holding and Gabriel and Tomiyasu, and sit Shaka and Elneny in front of them, and put Saka and Martinelli a little wide and up the pitch, you know, letting Kedia drop in and, and provide a little defense, however you have to do it, and try to hurt them on the counterattack. Just don't 
wind up in a situation where you're saying, how did we let Son and Kane get in behind and score on the counter? That's that's basically it for me because I think they've got one move, but they're real good at that one move, you know? Yeah, they're good in the counter. I think what Spurs did well against Liverpool, they covered the pitch nicely. Their wing back stayed wide. And and they did quite well. They were brave with Sessignon in, in really brave, keeping him high, you know, which I thought was very, very smart. They obviously wanted to pin Trent back and force Henderson back to cover him. So that was their plan there. And Emerson Royale was okay on the right-hand side. They didn't get a chance. We didn't get, Liverpool didn't really, what Liverpool did stupidly, they did over 40 crosses in the game. And what Spurs do is they keep their centre-backs nice and narrow they win the ball, then they break. So crosses, you're giving the ball away. Liverpool crosses are fantastic, obviously. But you are giving the ball away. All you do is give it away into their area, mostly. The trend putting over 20 crosses in that game. So, and he's the best there is at it, right? And I don't yeah, want to see... Yeah. yeah, I don't want to see Cedric putting mid-table crosses from the halfway line and watching Spurs run through our midfield because we won't be loving on any after that. Because one thing he isn't good is big spaces and tracking across the ground. So let's keep our distances nice and tight. Let's overload the centre of the pitch like we did the other day. Um, if Ben White comes in for me, I'd have him at right back straight away. I would give them nothing. Nothing. Let them see big bodies in front of them. Nothing. Keep our spaces nice and tight, and then make sure we can expand on them. Control possession. Get them nervous. Right, Every minute that goes by, there's one result for Spurs. There's only one. And they want to win this game. There was a period in our history, a long period, whenever we played Spurs, they were able to get two results and get a clap off their fans. They could get a draw or a win. We had to beat them because we were expected to beat them. Spurs have to beat us. They have to come out and play us. So make sure we don't concede early. Don't play the game they want to play on the counter. Make sure we control the game, get their crowd really nervous. Play short passes, not big swinging crosses, short combinations. Technically test them move them, get them into collisions, get them into foul trouble, get into booking, things like that. Make sure you're tight on Kane, because Kane fancies his little sweeping pass out to the right-hand side. Kulusevsky's a decent player, some we know about. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I think the wing-backs worry me a little bit, because I think that might stretch us out. Um, but we can stretch them out by being brave and playing behind their wing-backs, keeping Saka Martelli wide and high, and say to them, Okay, we're going to get you Romero out. We'll get Davis out, and do you fancy it? And by the way, we've got a centre forward that can run through. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting game of chess, right? Interesting game of chess. But please, 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 not forty Cedric crosses, please, for this day, because we could be in trouble. You, you got to have Tomiyasu on the right side, though, right, to shut down Son. I, mean, I, I think I, I think so. But this is why I go Ben White. You know, I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking this, and I, I think it's important that when you play against Kane, you have physicality. One little worry yesterday was, was Gabriel's booking. That, that's the booking. That's the one thing I don't like about him. He dives in sometimes on the halfway line, and he, and he arrives. That's so at, unnecessary. He yeah. arrives at speed again. It's all from a good place. Desire to do well. You know, it's not a bad thing. It's a desire to do well. But you've got to be physical. And Gabriel had one of his best games ever against Kane, and he had White next to him. So it'd be interesting to see what we do here. Um, will will he go Nuno? Who knows, right? He might he might go Nuno and Tommy Esso right back. It's going to be so interesting to see what he does. But hey, look, I'm beyond nervous already. I, I, I don't yeah. want to think about it. 
too obvious. Yeah, I just want it to be over with. I mean, there's a part of me yeah. now wishing, like, why didn't we play this game in January so we didn't have to deal with this? Well, that's but- another narrative, isn't it? There's a lot of people that say, oh, we ducked <laughs> out of the game, and so that's going to fire up Spurs. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking, yeah, let's see if we can mess you up at your stadium. Let's see if we can mess you up completely and kill the party. Right? It's going to be a very emotional occasion. A lot of young players in a cauldron, the likes of which they haven't really faced before, with a prize on the line, the likes of which they haven't competed for before. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna need a really great performance, but I, I think it is a day for discretion being the better part of valor. You know, I, and it's hard. I'm torn in a way because I thought Liverpool looked most dangerous against Spurs, pressing them because Spurs. Spurs center backs are crap at playing out. I mean, Dyer can't pass. You know, I don't. I don't know. Are they going to have to start Davidson, Sanchez, or who, who are they going to have? They've been going with Dyer, Romero, and Davis as three center backs. Davidson, Sanchez came on, and was and it an injury though? I, I can't remember now. He came on in the game. I can't remember now. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I don't think that they're great at playing out from the back. But the challenge of pressing them is, if they get past you, you're dead. You just, I mean, the one thing none of us will feel good about is if we're looking at that game saying we knew they were going to try to play long to Son and Kane and we let them do it. I don't think we will let them do it, but we'll see. There's plenty of time to cover that. The nerves are fully, fully kicked in, though. So <laughs> it is going to be hopefully a week that lives long in the memory, but I am excited for it to be over already. Um, let's leave it there and we'll, we'll do a little bit more previewing this match as we get closer. So uh, that will do it once again. Uh, last chance to get reviews in if you want to be entered into the drawing for free Patreon. Thank you so much for doing that. We really love you and just love you for being here in general. Uh, Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Pause. Woohoo. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Nice long one for you today to take all our minds off what is now a march towards immense anxiety, but this is it. Win, and you've hit every goal you could possibly ask for in the best possible way. So I hope that they will approach it with the excitement of what's on offer for them because as Clyde pointed out, Spurs have to go try to win that game and the pressure is on them. We can achieve our goals without this game. Uh, They cannot. So let's see how it goes. We love you. And for the love of God, we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Spurs nil. happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 